here is a series of rhetorical questions, which means that when I ask them, you do not have to answer aloud. But perhaps when I ask them, you will think about them and see if they might somehow encapsulate something of your experience. Has anyone in here, and we're just thinking of this past week, has anybody in here received bad news this week? Maybe your car broke down, or worse, your body, or a relationship. Did something aggravating happen at work? You were expecting a big bonus, and you got instead a membership in the Jelly of the Month Club, for instance. We ought to make a movie out of that. Maybe something happened in your household that made you either want to kill one of your children or your spouse? No. Maybe you felt a strange lump in your body or an ache in your joint and dread overcame you and you started to wonder, what is going to happen to me? What's going to happen to those I love if something happens to me? Was somebody mad at you? Did you have a difficult conversation, or should you have had one, but you avoided it? You didn't call somebody that you were afraid to talk to? Did you wonder why God hated you? When well, he obviously favored Jenny so much that he would give her such a lovely life, and Fred so much that he would give him so much carefreeness, and would give all the junk you. Did you wonder how you were going to keep loving somebody who wasn't going to return that love? Did you hate someone secretly beneath the veil of your smile when they told you really good news that had happened to them, but not to you? Did you malign somebody with your words? Did you look at your credit card bill or a bank account statement and for the first time in your life start hoping that the smart preppers were right and that Jesus may be coming back next Wednesday at 11? Not because you're interested in Jesus coming back, but just so you didn't have to pay the bills. Well, if any of those kinds of things came across, Cross your path in the last week. Anything disappointing, any death of the dreams, anything that caused anxiety or fear, then I think I might have something worth saying to you. And if none of those things resonate with you in even the slightest way, I would suggest, without shame, that you leave and go take a nap. A self-satisfied, smug nap. Because I'm assuming that we, like Simeon, who had lived many years waiting for the consolation of Israel, live in similar kinds of conditions. You don't wait for consolation if you don't need consolation. You learn to wait for consoling or for comfort or for tenderness, repair, compassion, some kind of help when things go bleak on you, when they go dark on you. When nothing's going right for you. 
And the longer you've lived on this sad planet, the longer you've been able to see things go wrong. That's why you're always warning your children. You know all the things there are to fear and all the things that can go sour on. Why they need to be prepared. We're all afflicted. In some way or another, we all encounter, as you well know, various kinds of travail. Johnny Erickson Tata in her book, When God Weeps, says that suffering, and this is a great definition of it, suffering is having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. That's a good definition for it. It's having what you don't want. Your life is filled right now with things that you wish were removed from your life. And sometimes it's wanting what you don't have. Anne Hathaway plays a cassette's mother in, I might be saying this wrong, Less Miserables is in the new motion picture. And in this film, which I have not seen the new version of, but aim to, you know the song that life has killed the dream I dream. This woman who has been scorned by her love, who's having given up her child, has had to turn to dubious means of support, is being then ground down by the wheels of living and is crying, weeping about all these hopes and expectations he had and that life has beat him out of it. Has crushed the dream that I dream. And anybody who's paying attention knows something like that. And you might even know something like this. That the boys and I yesterday were cursed enough by God to have to be shopping. And, just kidding, we wanted to be. And as we were walking through an overcrowded parking lot, there was a woman standing outside a Honda Pilot or some such automobile. And you could hear her speaking clearly and faintly a child crying. I don't know the age of the child. I couldn't tell. I couldn't see it. Her. But the mother, or the grandmother, I also couldn't tell for sure which, said to this crying child, to this inconsolable child, Why are you crying? You got what you wanted! See, Grandma made the perennial error of thinking that we are the sort of people that if we get what we want, we will not cry. Well, we'll cry even if we get what we want. We sometimes don't even know what we want. But the good thing about us is, as soon as we get whatever it is we think we want... It's not it. We want something else. We're always having what we don't want and wanting what we don't have. And those are the conditions that the first advent comes in. Simeon, this old man who's lived many years, faithful. He was a righteous and devout man. A man who prayed. A man who went to synagogue, a man who fulfilled the law's commands, a man who looked to God, who wanted God's ways, who was looking for God to come through on His promises and had not seen them come true yet. But he was waiting. He knew they would come. He knew that consolation would come. Perhaps not so sure that His consolation would come crying in the form of a baby. But he was told by the Holy Spirit. We're not told how he was told. Maybe it was a whisper. Maybe it was a dream. 
Maybe it was a slight nod on the shoulder, but he was told that he would not die before he had seen God's rescuer come into his world. And this was a, a dream of his, a nursed dream that nourished him. I'm not going to die, God told him specifically. And so one day, maybe he thought, I dropped a coin. Maybe he thought, I need to get somewhere. Somehow or another, he was moved by the Holy Spirit, we're told, carried along as God is wont to do to get someone at the right place at the right time. And God, in this grand choreography, moves Simeon to the temple where a young couple who's just had a baby under some very unusual circumstances, the young couple, Mary and Joe, so, and they're bringing Jesus in this very normal circumstance. They're, they're coming to the temple because they're people who follow God. They're listening to the law. They're getting him circumcised. They're having the sign of God's favor, the sign of God's fidelity applied to this little boy, and they're consecrating him to the Lord, saying, as all good Jewish folks would do with their firstborn son, this baby belongs to you. And as they come into the temple, Simeon meets them there. And like any young mother would do, Apparently Mary lets this weird man who comes up to them hold her baby. All the young moms I know would just let a strange man in the temple courts hold their baby. I am being sarcastic. I do not know one mother anywhere who would let that happen. But Simeon takes this baby into his arms. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And he erupts in a kind of praise. He's finally laid eyes on his consolation. And he's so happy about it, he says, I'm okay to croak now. My life has been fulfilled. I've seen your word made true. I'm holding it before my eyes. I don't know how the story is going to end, but I've seen enough of it to be okay, to be discharged, to be sent away. And as you listen to this song that he says, you listen to this little hymn and the depiction of what he thinks is going on with Jesus being there and then what he says to the mother and father I think you can see this this great concept of this that God is always up to good even in the midst of very bad that's what's so encouraging about this while Simeon is there waiting for the consolation of Israel and has been tapped on the shoulder and maybe whispered in the ear by God that he's going to see something magnificent everybody else has not seen that No one else has heard any of that, but everybody is in a condition of having to wait, of having things they don't want and wanting things they don't have. And what is clear to Simeon, and as he talks about this baby, it should be clear to us. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon sees in this word, Sovereign Lord, that the Bible sometimes uses, this whole idea that God is choreographing things, that God is moving the pieces around, that God has authored this drama, that God is making sure that people are in the right places at the right times, that He is taking care of all things sad. And Simeon realizes, wow, I've been waiting all this time, and here I'm seeing this baby And it's a sign that the Sovereign Lord has done as He's promised, that He's been working behind the scenes for all these years during these drought conditions where we've heard nothing from God. 
Israel had not heard much from God in 400 years. They were exiled. They were ruled by enemies. It looked like none of their promises were going to be realized. But Simeon kept waiting. And he found out that God had been doing stuff even in the midst of seeming like he wasn't doing anything. That he was up to good. Well, that's really hopeful. Because the Bible says that the Gentiles, the nations, that they could be described as this, people without hope and without God in the world. And for Simeon to lay eyes on this baby and say, my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, that this is a gift to the whole world, really. Now think about that. What's amazing about that is that God has been preparing a gift for the whole world who is without Him, who does not think about Him, who is not concerned with Him, who in some ways could be described as people who do not know their left hand from their right hand. And think about yourself while this is good news. You ever find yourself as somebody who doesn't know which way is up? That finds yourself saying, you know, I don't know that I want to follow God. I don't know that He's any good. I don't know if I want to give myself to Him entirely. And Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, right here with my own eyes, I'm seeing something. I'm seeing something, an indication that you're up to good, even in the midst of the world, not paying any attention to you. You're bringing something to bear that's going to change everything. He's been given sight. And it's a sight that's going to Bring a great new vision for the whole world. And as you look at this, as you look at this site, one of the things that Simeon must be doing is something that we need to do too, and there's two things. Expecting rescue, expecting conflict. As you think about this idea that God is always up to something good, even in the midst of something bad, that means that you ought to expect rescue and you ought to expect conflict. And Here's how. My eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. This whole idea that right before him is the Savior of the world. He recognizes somehow or another in this baby a Savior. Now, a friend of mine years ago who's a writer came up with this. I think he came up with this. He said, why did Jesus create Santa Claus? Why did Jesus create Santa Claus? And here's the reason to keep people from looking too much at his baby pictures. No grown man wants people always looking at his baby pictures. So he created a diversion, this St. Nicholas that we'll focus on. Because you know what? Jesus grew up. And Simeon wasn't hoping for an 8-pound, 6-ounce sweet baby Jesus like Ricky Bobby. Simeon was looking for one who was going to repair all things broken. And he saw the start of that in this child. Who knows if he knew how it was all going to work out, but he knew that right there, this person, that was salvation. That was rescue. I wonder if you and I think like that. In the midst of all the situations you find where you need rescue, in the midst of all the situations you find where you have what you don't want and you want what you don't have, if you are consciously looking to this one, Simeon doesn't make it seem as if, nor does the rest of the Bible, that people can just kind of generically look to a God somewhere. 
or that they can look to any created thing to fix them, to heal them, to satisfy them. It always is exclusive. It's always insistent that there is one God, one Savior, and there is no other. And Simeon says, right here, I've seen him. It's this person. It's Jesus. He's my salvation. He's my rescue. Do you look to Him for rescue? When you look into your life, or when other people look at your life, would it be apparent to them that you are actively, consciously, fervently, expectantly looking to this Jesus to be your Savior, to be your family Savior, to be the Savior of the world, to be the one who brings rescue? It seems to me that if we really believe this, my eyes have seen salvation. I trust this Jesus. It was the preparation of the Sovereign Lord to heal all the world's wounds, to create praise in the lips of the mourners. I think we would live differently. We wouldn't be ruled by so much fear. We probably wouldn't give ourselves so wholeheartedly to a host of other things. Are you looking actively to this Jesus for your rescue? And at the same time as you look to this Jesus for your rescue, you are to expect conflict. Here's what Simeon says. He talks about how wonderful this Jesus is going to be. And then his parents, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they marvel at what it said about him. They are astonished. What? He's going to do what? He's who? And then Simeon looks at Mary, his mother, and he says this child is going to be very disruptive. Not in a he's going to need Ritalin or medicine for his ADHD, but he's going to be very disruptive. Because as a light, as a light to the nations, as a depiction of God, what's going to happen is he's going to go square up against hostile powers and people who are hostile to his reign. He's invading the world as the king coming to take his kingdom back so that the kingdom of our world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And of his Christ. This touch this last week. And this light is going to be to some like a harsh matco fluorescent light when you're coming off the highway and it's been dark. It's all dark outside and you come into a convenience mart and it feels like it's 3 o'clock in the morning no matter what time of day you go in there. Because all of the harsh, abrasive, fluorescent light and that light is going to show up every blemish, every wrinkle, everything wrong and some people are going to want to hide from that light. Some people are not going to want to be ruled by this king. And he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken. This child's going to cause conflict. Oh, and here's your Mother's Day card, Mary. A sword will pierce your own soul too. Feliz Navidad. But you know what's comforting to me about this? Simeon is looking, and at the same time he's rejoicing in this Savior. 
And if you don't know you need a Savior, there's a lot to rejoice about. If you find yourself as somebody who's eaten up with shame, you find yourself as someone who, you know, you, you go downtown, you've you seen this downtown, you've seen these guys outside the Hilton, they're outside a hotel, and they've got this gigantic sign. I don't know what they're doing or what they're hoping will happen, but this sign that says, Shame on you, Hilton! Have you seen that? Yes. Okay. I assume it's a union of some sort. But it's one dude and a giant sign with loud red letters. But some of you had that same giant sign with loud red letters right inside your soul. And it's always saying, shame on you. Shame on you. I can't believe you didn't come through. I can't believe you're so flimsy. I can't believe you're like this. And if you know, on the one hand, Jesus covers that shame. He doesn't say shame. He says, let me cover you up in your shame. With the harsh light exposing you, let me cover it and say, I'll take care of it all. Expect rescue like that. But if you don't at the same time expect conflict, you're going to be in for a world of hurt because you're going to meet up with conflict. Jesus is going to cause conflict in the world. Anybody who follows Jesus is going to meet up with hostile powers. It's inconceivable to me how nervous Christians are in our country. That people are hostile against Christians. It's proof that it's true. The Bible is very clear. Can I tell you please? The Bible is very clear that if you want Jesus to be your rescuer, if you're attached to Him, if you're looking to Him to make all things new and to destroy the works of the devil, here is what is going to happen to you. You're going to know hardship. Many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, the Bible says. Endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is treating you as sons. If we want to reign with Him, we must suffer with Him. Why do you act as if something strange is happening to you? Entrust yourselves to God then in your suffering. And in a little while, He will restore you. If you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to suffer. Now, that doesn't sound like very happy Advent greetings, does it? Unless you live in the conditions that I just described at the beginning. Having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. And to me, this is the greatest thing about the truthfulness of the Bible. Is at the same time it celebrates the coming and expectation of rescue of Jesus. It says, but no, this rescue is going to come in the midst of conflict. Because that's where we live. You know what the most popular version of Christianity right now is? The most growing prevalent version of Christianity throughout the world? It's the version that is, I think, heretical. It's a version not that has borrowed extra biblical things, but has taken things in the Bible which seem to be at odds with each other and pushed one of them down and elevated one of the others. It's the version of Christianity that tells you, you got a blood-bought right to a Cadillac. Or if you don't want no Cadillac, a blood-bought right to a BMW. Because you're a child of the King. But Jesus, well, He'll heal you. He'll snap His finger. Well, that's terrible. He'll snap, you'll snap your finger. And Jesus will heal you. He'll make you new. He'll deliver you out of that addiction just like that. Pronto. See, I can't snap. Hmm? Well, Jesus will deliver people. Sometimes He does it instantaneously. But you know what? All over the place there are voices saying, Jesus will rescue you now all the way. Jesus will rescue you now instantaneously. Jesus will heal you permanently. All the things that Jesus has won for you, all the things that this Savior has secured for you, all the 
increase of his government, all the promises of the new world are yours now. One reason you shouldn't believe is because it's just not true. It doesn't take into consideration all the parts of the Bible that say if you're attached to the sorrowing Savior, you're going to sorrow too. If you're going to one day experience glory, you're going to today experience deprivation. This believing that you're going to have conflict is going to give you what Pastor Hutch says, a theology for the long haul. Because this is what our life is like. We follow Jesus, but it's not in the kinds of conditions in which we wish. We want a trouble-free life. I want a trouble-free life. I want to be unbothered. I don't want to be fat. I would like never to hurt. I don't want anything to happen wrong to anybody that I know. Or even people I don't know. Heck, I'm feeling generous. I don't want anything wrong to happen ever. But guess what? It does. And Simeon, in the midst of his song where he's praising the Sovereign Lord, says, and a sword will pierce your soul. He's going to cause the rising of some and the falling of others. This kid is going to be a king, and he's going to cause conflict. And you're going to experience the conflict right down the middle of your own heart, your middle of your own life. You're going to have at moments these times where I want to follow Jesus, and at other moments saying, uh, but my fingers are crossed behind my back. I'm not so sure about this. I don't know if I want to go all in with this, Jesus. Because that might mean I'm going to have to get reconciled with somebody that I presently hate and hope that a large rock will fall on top of their heads. I don't know if I really want to give myself to Jesus because then I might have to move to Zimbabwe or I might have to give away some money or I might have to conduct my business differently or I might have to come clean about something. I don't even know if this Jesus can be trusted. He won't answer my prayer. He's not healing these people I'm asking to be healed. He's not changing my business around that I'm asking to be changed. And you're conflicted. And if you think that the conflict means that something's wrong, that the only problem is you just don't have enough faith, you haven't believed hard enough, you'll probably just give up on God. But if you believe that this Jesus, when He came, it was predicted that He would cause conflict. And the conflict runs right down the middle of your own life. It actually can keep you going. That is normal. That's why the Savior came into the world. He came into the midst of conditions where people had what they did not want and wanted what they did not have. And He took all their troubles on Him. He knows that we live in the conditions that our worship leader, Luda Lake, recently sang about. He made this great song. It's called, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's, it's a song that starts out talking about the change in the weather and how it causes and invokes all these nostalgic Christmas feelings. And it's, it's time to go out into the woods and chop down the best evergreen. And I'm going to bring it home, this evergreen. And beneath its leaves, beneath its branches, I'm going to flank it with Christmas presents. And our home is going to be filled with mirth. A regular Saturday, Saturday evening post picture, a Norman Rockwell Christmas. That's what's going on. And he says, but the only thing I'm ticked about, I'm altering things a little bit. The only thing I'm ticked about is that the Christmas tree gave me poison oak. And this really happened in Dave's life. He got a very severe case of poison oak. So the second stanza of the song starts like this. 
I'm sleeping on the floor applying my third round of meds. If Santa Claus came down the chimney right now, I would kill him dead. Sorry not to be festive, but you're not the one who is infested. It's a silent night of nightmares that would render even Rudolph useless. And I think this autobiographical tale of a man who got a bad case of poison oak and then a staph infection and all sorts of trouble and chaos, all in the process of carrying a Christmas tree that had been in contact with poison oak. I think what a perfect metaphor for expecting rescue and expecting conflict. These are the conditions in which we live. These are the conditions that Jesus saves us from. These are the conditions that Jesus aims to repair, but he hasn't done it all yet. And Simeon was rejoicing, even though Jesus hadn't done a thing except be born. He was just a baby. He hadn't done nothing yet. But Simeon could rejoice because he knew that the fact that he was born meant that God was up to things. That God had been concocting plans. That God was the one who could be trusted. Even when we can't be. Even when we're faithless. Even when we're flimsy. God is sturdy and reliable. And the presence of His salvation in this person of Jesus means I can expect rescue. Even in the midst of lots of conflict. You know the movie perhaps. Or the book that you might have been forced to read as a junior high student. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And in this movie, there's this story, this novel. Atticus Finch is an attorney in segregated Alabama in the, I don't know, 30s, 40s, 50s sometimes. And he has the onerous task as a good man, a courageous man, of representing an African-American fellow in a community where African-American fellows aren't regarded so highly. And this particular man has been accused of a horrendous crime against a white woman. Well, Atticus Finch takes on the case. He becomes his advocate, his only advocate. Great cost to himself. Everybody hates him. They can't believe that he wouldn't just join in the finger wagon this African American man. And at the end of the story, Miss Maddie says this to a boy. You know, some men are born to this world to do our unpleasant jobs for us. Your father, Atticus, is a man like that. Some men are born into this world to do our unpleasant jobs for us. And to me, one of the most magnificent things about Advent is this reminder that in the midst of all the unpleasantness that you face today and that you're going to face tonight and tomorrow, that the Savior comes to that. That this baby was born to do our unpleasant jobs for us. To bear our sorrows. To promise us a future that no eye has seen nor mind conceived where sad things really do become untrue. Where broken things really are pieced back together where redemption is possible where it will happen and sometimes it happens boom right there on the spot and always this one who 
pain to do our unpleasant jobs for us exists, we're told, to intercede for us, to advocate for us, to be a king fighting for us, who says to call to him, to look to him, even in the midst of conflict. You may not have what you want. You may not want what you have. But there is a Savior in whom resides all of God's favor, and his name is Jesus. And he's come to do our unpleasant jobs for us. And from him, you can expect conflict, but you can also, and should also, always expect rescue.